0: chapter 2, we're going to read this morning from verses 1 to 13. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for your glorious word, that you have revealed yourself wonderfully through it. We see your character in what you command us to do and what you instruct us to do and what you tell us not to do. And certainly as it speaks of your son and the way his church is to live out their lives, uh, we see your glory and pray that we would be not only hearers of the word this morning, but indeed doers and this we pray in jesus name amen so james chapter 2 reading from verse 1 my brothers as believers in our glorious lord jesus christ don't show favoritism suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But... If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. This is God's words. Well, two questions for us straight away. Number one. Do we believe that we should love our neighbour as ourselves? Well, surely we do. It's part and parcel of the Christian faith, isn't it? In Mark 12, when Jesus was asked, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? He says, Well, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. It's fundamental to who we are as Christians. So do we, do we believe we should love our neighbor as ourselves? Yes, we do. Do we think then that we are guilty of showing favoritism something James forbids in verse 1? I think we are. But maybe the response is mixed among us. Maybe we think, well, how can we actually know? Well, let's have an illustration just as James has given it. Imagine yourself one Sunday morning serving as part of our welcoming team. And as you stand there, two people walk in. One looks like this—not that guy. This guy. There he is. <laughs> Clean shaven, wearing a tailored suit. Is that money out of the hanging out of the top of his pocket? I, I thought it was a handkerchief when I saw that, actually, but I think it is money. Anyway. And then another one comes in looking like this, looking quite unkempt, perhaps wearing clothes that had not been washed in a while. The question is, as you look at these two people as they come in the front door and you're poised, ready with your lovely Charlotte Chapel welcome, who are you most likely to greet? Who are you most likely to move towards? And why is that? Why is that? Is it because of your preferences? Is it because of your prejudices? Is it because in your heart of hearts that you want something? Either you maybe want something good from the rich man or that you want to avoid something that you anticipate being complex and time-consuming from the poor man. What does it boil down to? Why are we so prejudiced? What does our response to that illustration tell us about our hearts? And again, the questions can be asked again. Do we believe we should love our neighbor as ourselves? Yes. Do we see that sometimes we are guilty of showing favoritism? Oh yeah, actually, And I think we are yet again finding ourselves having thought as believers that we are single-mindedly devoted to loving God and loving neighbor, charged with James again, who takes the wind out of us again by our double-mindedness that is apparent. And a double-mindedness that shows up in our practice, proving that we are on shaky ground remember what he said in chapter one that the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways so there's a poor foundation to a christian life if we are unstable in this regard james has already dealt with praying and doubting so praying's good doubting's not good when you pray it shows a double-mindedness hearing and doing as well as we were thinking about last week and favoritism is next on the list All he needed to say was, in in verse 1, don't show favoritism and serve up for us what is really a timelessly relevant illustration and I hope we're all listening in. Because in this passage today, I think James shows us a number of things. The first thing I want us to see are three reasons why favoritism is wrong. And in doing so, have our hearts exposed to some extent to see why it's wrong and then apply some gospel ban towards the end. So three reasons. Number one, uh, favoritism is rooted in a sinful displacement of the king. We see this in verse four, having shown us what this uh, divided congregation looks like, basically, in verses two and three. He shows us such divisions are actually rooted in the minds of the members. Have you not discriminated among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts. So you think you love your neighbor as yourself, but James is saying, I think you're a judge with evil thoughts. If we show favoritism to one person in preference over another, we actually do two things. First of all, we we misunderstand our status. We make ourselves to be judges over other people. That, That has not been appointed to us to do. Who has the right to sit in judgment over people? Going back to verse 1, we see who it is that has this right. And who has this rightful place as judge? It is the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, who said of himself in John 5.22, that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to, to you, to me, he says. So we displace Christ as the true judge. And we place ourselves in that kind of position when we raise up our prejudices and make them the grounds for our whether or not we show love to a certain neighbor. But what's worse, we're not just judges. We've, just, we've not just usurped the king of kings himself. We are judges with evil thoughts. Evil thoughts, evil intentions that work their way out. Think of judges in our own law courts. What do we expect them to be? Surely impartial, uh, not biased in any way, not swayed by personal prejudices. So what then would we think if, if judges in our own land were to judge people before them based on their own biases or by their own laws that they made up, that laws that they thought were more important than other laws, or even different to the laws of that land. Well we would say that they were corrupt, surely. And that's exactly what James is saying about believers who practice favoritism. The criteria that we put in place to determine whether or not a person is welcomed by us, you see, is not motivated by good or godly thoughts, but it's symptomatic, actually, of evil thoughts in our own minds and, I would say, evil desires in our own hearts. It's plain to see then the application of this should be that our wants, priorities should be much more in line with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we do not deny him his authority and his rightful place. The problem is though, our evil thoughts tend to make us think very, very selfishly. And we don't think with indeed the mind of Christ that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And often the reason why we have our favourites, often the reason why we show preference for a certain person or a certain kind of person is because we think in our heart of hearts that we can actually gain something from other people. We're more likely to spend time and energy on a relationship with a person that we think can serve our interests or perhaps increase our feelings of self-importance. Again, that's a sinful perspective. I mean, the, the Bible never teaches us that relationships are intended for our personal fulfillment. No, our relationships are intended, along with everything else about the Christian life, to be lived for the glory of God alone. Is that not true? Our relationships are primar- primarily to be all for the glory of God and gospel gain. That's one reason. I mean, the opposite reason to that would be rooted in something that is commonly known as the fear of man, where we show preference for another person, maybe because they are powerful, or we fear, maybe because we fear that person isn't on our side necessarily and if they're not on our side and they are powerful then maybe that power will actually work against us. So even out of a fear of the man who seems powerful in some form we will move kindly and warmly towards him rather than the other because we fear how they will use power and influence against us. We combat the fear of man with a healthy fear of the Lord. With a healthy, biblical, right perspective of God. Of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Who reigns on his throne. Who holds the keys of death and hell. Who has the earth as his very footstool. He is the Lord of glory. And our vision of him should regulate our fears, particularly this fear of man. It should regulate everything that we do for him. And certainly in the presence of brothers and sisters in a church. So we see that favoritism in the first instance is rooted in this sinful displacement of the king. We become judges with evil thoughts. The second thing, favoritism results in discriminating against the inheritors of the king's kingdom this is what we see in verses 5 to 7 listen my dear brothers has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him verse 6 says but you have insulted the poor so in their sinful judgment rooted in wicked thoughts Members of these churches, by showing favoritism and preference to those who are rich and powerful and the like, have in fact insulted the very people that God has loved and chosen for salvation, that he has chosen for richness in faith, which is far better, of course, than financial riches, and they who are heirs of the coming kingdom. The people who, the very people who, when the new heaven and new earth are realized, will rule it and run it as co-heirs with Christ. But these are the people we insult when we practice favoritism. God has always sought to include the poor in his plan to redeem a people for himself. And it has to be said that this is not a particular bias for the poor or even a hatred for the rich. That would be favoritism of another kind and thoroughly inconsistent with what God is saying and with who God is. I think the emphasis on God's concern for the poor is set out for us to stand in stark contrast to the, to the rich who take advantage of the poor. He is on their side in terms of appreciating their plight and their suffering. It's what Deuteronomy 10 was talking about, wasn't it? We read it earlier. The Lord, mighty and awesome, shows no partiality. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. So those that we in our sinful thoughts and tendencies have, would in all likelihood seek to take advantage of or dismiss or ignore and leave them to their own devices. And again, verse 20 of Deuteronomy uh, 10 says, Fear the Lord your God and serve him. And again, it comes down to fear of man. I think the, the problem is we fear man and we serve him. And incredibly, the result of that is that we can think of the people who are actually heirs of this kingdom that is to come. We think of them as lesser people. I I, I see this in myself, and I'm pretty sure that you've seen it also in some form, that we can be so short-sighted when it comes to living life together as a church in terms of the relationships that we build, the relationships that we pursue, our tendency towards welcoming people even on Sunday morning or after the service whom we choose to speak to once the benediction has been offered. Do you know the people sitting around about you? Or do you zoom past the person you don't know that well just to get to the person that you do know quite well because it's a place of comfort and enjoyment for you? It's a punch in the guts, isn't it? You're winded. I can tell. Breathe. Because the gospel's coming. <laughs> but we're supposed to let it hit us. <laughs> I'm sad about this because I see this in my own life in recent weeks. Never mind in a distant past. This is a very real concern for us. I think the extent of our error is made plain in the second part of verse 6 where we discover that believers not only insult those God has chosen to be heirs of the kingdom, but we bless those who slander the name of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't realize I did that. But it's true. And again, don't misunderstand this. James is not saying that the rich always persecute believers and blaspheme the name of Jesus. That's not what's being said. Indeed, in relative terms, being in the top 5% of the richest people in the world, every person in this room would be in that category. But James is saying it's true of many of those who are rich. The Bible consistently, you can't avoid it, the Bible consistently presents riches as being obstacles to either becoming a Christian or growing as a Christian. It's quite a challenging thing for us also. And in all likelihood, James, those James writes to are currently seeing people of power, wealth and prestige hauling believers before authorities and try to make them deny the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he means when he's saying they are, to, they are the ones who are making you blaspheme the name of Jesus, the Lord of glory. So they would take you, if they didn't like your Christianity in those days, they would take you into their law courts. Take you before the authorities of their town and say, unless you deny the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and curse him before us, they'll give them something dirty to say about him. We're going we're to put embargoes on your trading. We're not going to buy your stuff. You're going to be on your own. Your wife is going to be shunned at the well, etc. But in fact, the, the, what we are called to see here is that we reject and discriminate against those who are inheritors of the kingdom. We welcome with open arms those who are blaspheming the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that practice, it is we who deny the name of Jesus. It is we who deny him. It's a big issue for us still. I think money still talks in Christian churches. It would be easy to say to the best givers or to those who give their energy most of all in their, or their time and expertise in service of the church and show preferential care, for them give them more of a hearing than anyone else but of all people Christians and Christian churches should be the people who treat everyone the same without distinction with impartiality in the same way that God does and i suppose in response to this some people might just turn around and say well I mean, it does sound pretty hard-hitting, but is it, is it really that big a deal, favoritism? It's not like we're murdering anyone, is it? Well, actually, it is. Read on. Verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. And here's the third thing. Favoritism results in breaking the very law that the king has set for his kingdom. Love for neighbor is exactly what it's all about. And there are no conditions on that. And love should certainly be that distinctive mark of every believer and every local church. This is God's law. He instituted it in the Old Testament. Jesus reaffirmed it gladly in Mark 12, as I mentioned earlier. As, and it's a royal law. It's a royal law, as James says, because it belongs to the king. It was uttered by the king, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ himself. And there's even instruction in this as well. We are to love as we love ourselves. Not like Narcissus, the mythological character who fell in love with his own reflection and just spent day after day gazing at himself in the, the reflection of this pool until eventually he fell in and died. Love of self is not about being narcissistic, it's... It's about, quite simply, recognizing the fact that you show yourself love and care. You feed yourself. You clothe yourself. You you make sure that you don't go hungry. You make sure that you're not freezing cold. Okay. Now turn that out of the way. Go and do that for other people. That's what you are to do for your neighbor. If you're going to really keep the royal law found in scripture to love your neighbor as you love yourself, James encourages us, you're doing, you're doing it right. That's right. Be clear, that's right. <laughs> but favoritism is wrong. And that's what he reaffirms again in verse 9. It's not only inappropriate for God's people and inconsistent with God's choice of those who are going to inherit his kingdom, it's illegal in accordance with his royal law law. Verses 9 and 10 tell us if you sin, you're convicted by the law as a law breaker. And this is where we see the law acts as a whole. You can't pick and choose what commandments to keep. And to break one commandment, you could say to commit one sin, is no little thing as people sometimes make out. James says, break one law, you break the whole thing. I often try to imagine the law Not as like a stained glass window or like one of those windows up there with its many individual panes. So you can break one individual panes representing a different law. You break one pane and the rest of it remains intact. I think rather the law is meant to be seen that if we, uh, that whole section of window is one pane of glass. And if you throw a stone at it, so your sin strikes one particular area of that glass, the whole thing shatters. The whole thing breaks. Nothing is intact. You become a law breaker. And by doing so, offend the law giver. You see, the thing which gives the law its indivisible nature is the character of, the, of God who spoke it. Sinning, there is nothing arbitrary about the laws that God has set. And nothing, there's no levels, if you like, of sin in this particular regard. When God says something is right or wrong, it's because it's either consistent or inconsistent with his holy character. And it says a lot when we choose to break that law. It says a lot about the relationship that I have with the lawgiver that I break his law. And this is in practice in many ways. I mean, here's an illustration for you. Let's say my wife sends me out for milk and eggs. And I go out and I come back with milk and a galaxy chocolate bar. You've all done it. I understand quite clearly what she wants? Not that my wife is a lawgiver, by the way. I'll uh, just uh, stress that. What does it say about our relationship that I know what she wants, but I deliberately don't do it? I deliberately don't get the things that she wants. What does it say that I understand exactly that she wants me to get milk and eggs, but I get milk and galaxy. It says, actually, I don't have any real respect for the relationship or for the request of the one who makes uh, the request itself. And so why, when we know what God wants us to do in terms of living a holy life, do we not do it? Why do we fail to see that sin so breaks our relationship with God? Do we understand this? Maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian. Maybe you think, well, my sin is not even sin. I just, I just get to do what I want. I have my own degree of morality. Well, you, you may, you may, but it's not God's law. And because God made you, you're not autonomous. You're not able to make up your own law. That's the claim of the Bible. You are accountable to him. Everyone must give an account before God. So what do you think God would do if you claimed that you had kept your law? Though you had quite clearly broken His? Well, you would face judgment. And actually, just for argument's sake, let's say that you did keep your moralistic standard, your law, very, very well. In fact, let's forget God's law. Let's take your law and make that the standard by which you are now going to live. And when it gets to the end of your life, even if God brought out your law, your standard of morality, and said, okay, this is the basis by which we're going to judge your life. Do you think that you really have even kept that law to the letter? No, because you know your own weakness. The Bible calls that sinful nature. You can't deal with it by yourself. What you need is the gospel, the very mercy of God, the love of God. The very one who sends Jesus Christ, our glorious Savior and Lord, into the world to be born as a baby. To live a holy and perfect life in complete obedience to the law. Every pain, every bit of glass entirely intact in his life. He was tempted, don't forget that, but he was without sin. That qualified him to be a substitute for us to stand in the place of sinners as one who is perfectly sinless and take take upon himself the sin of the world, the punishment of God's just judgment for those who had sinned against him and broken his law. And he says, I'll take it on me. Let them go free. Let all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in my work on the cross, he says, let them go free. You have not kept your own law, never mind God's law. That's a cause to be concerned, but it's not a cause for despair. It would only be a cause for despair if there was no hope. But the gospel says there is hope. So please keep listening. There are two ways for us to see hope. Two ways to prevent this kind of favoritism grabbing us and moving us in the direction of just people we have prejudice against or for and forgetting other people so breaking the law of loving our neighbour read verse 12 with me speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom verse 8 has said if you really keep the law you'll be doing well verse 12 says you, if you keep the royal law you'll speak, you'll act knowing the truth of the gospel, that it really does set you free. You see, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you make this law your own. Not that you're trying to gain some favor or merit before him. He has already saved you without that. In fact, when everything was working against you, no, he is saying now, on, on the basis of who I am and what I have done for you, live this way. Love your neighbor, knowing that even when you fall, I have covered over your sin. Remember the efficacy, the sureness, the certainty of the blood that is yours. Through faith in me, he says. And so, speak and act. Not out of some kind of fear. That, oh, I'm just going to break it again. What is the point? And be prone to thinking through. I'm just going to give this up. No, but to move forward, motivated by the gospel. By the fact that our sins are already paid for. Move forward, motivated by grace. Motivated by Christ's work on the cross. Not your work for yourself. And know the freedom. The freedom that that brings for those who are in Christ. Remember you then. The first thing is you are free to obey God's law. Jesus Christ has made it possible. You are free to obey God's law without that fear of failure. You will fail, but don't fear it. Try not to. But Don't see that as a work. Trust in Christ's perfect work. The law is meant to encourage us. The law is meant to show us our sin, point us to Jesus, and then motivate us for good and godly living according to the instructions of the royal law, the words of our glorious King Jesus Christ. We break this law, but he has made a way for us to move forward. His perfect obedience is a platform for our right living. Second thing we have to remember though, there is warning for us in this passage. James doesn't allow you to skim over it at all. In verse 13 uh, where he says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So a lack of obedience to God's law and a failure to act like God acts towards others showing Mercy, and not some special favor, not because they deserve it, but because of who you are might might show you and give you hope in knowing your status as a child of God. It could act otherwise, of course, with a failure to show mercy indicative that you may not have received mercy yourself, but showing mercy is exactly what this love command requires no favoritism is equated to showing mercy this is how the poor man should be treated it seems that he's persecuted everywhere else as per the example but it shouldn't be like that in church and james warns us if you discriminate and put yourself in the seat of a judge you put yourself in danger of the full force of god's just judgment the reciprocal relationship between man's mercy and God's mercy is brought out for us wonderfully in that parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. You remember that, where, where in that parable, a man forgives a man who is owe him something, clears a great debt. That man goes out, he has someone who is owed him something, and he throttles the man to try and get what is owe him, what is due him. And when the first man hears about it, he says, what are you doing? You would have thought with the mercy that I had shown you in cancelling your debt that you might have gone out and cancelled the debt of the man who owed you this tiny amount. Well, there's a warning for us. But the good news, the good news for us is that mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a lot of debate about what this verse means. I think it means that our mercy triumphs over God's judgment in that what it does is that when we show mercy it in a sense defends us before his judgment seat so it's as if judgment comes to speak before the tribunal of God and mercy stands up mercy that is motivated by grace and trust in the cross stands up and fearlessly resists the charge friends we need to realize that we will never truly love our neighbor perfectly but our merciful attitude and actions towards our neighbor will prove that our lives are built on Christ, that our lives are marked by the very presence of Christ in our lives. And so encourage us forward to speak and to act in a way that even God would speak and act. Because it's on the basis of our union. Again, with the one, Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled the law, that we can then leave our judgmental attitudes, our sinful thoughts, our law-breaking aside, and live in single-minded devotion. Not double-minded, single-minded devotion as followers of our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 1, don't show favoritism. Let's pray.